0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Immensity Cloistered in Thy Dear Womb. Venerating the Mother of God, Worshiping the Son of God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December twentieth, two 2009, the fourth Sunday in Advent. When I was in Oxford several years ago, every evening I left my study carol and walked down Woodstock Road to the city center in order to attend the Evensong services at Magdalen College. I loved so many things about those 30 minutes of worship. The peace and quiet, the architecture, the history of Magdalen College, which was founded in 1448 the smell of the candles that lit the early darkness of October, the boys' choir in robes, in the formal liturgy. But one part of Evensong caught me off guard. Every single night we would sing Mary's Magnificat, which is Luke's gospel for this week. Why did the daily liturgy assign her such prominence? Why was Mary so central to the daily Christian confession? In the small Presbyterian church where I grew up, every Sunday we recited the the Apostles' Creed that Jesus was quote born of the virgin Mary. But practically speaking, Mary played no role at all in my Christian identity. Later, I learned that Protestants, in fact, question dogmas about Mary that were codified quite recently and that don't enjoy clear biblical support, like her perpetual virginity, her freedom from actual and original sin, and the idea that she didn't die but was taken directly to heaven. We Protestants also get agitated about exalted language that sounds like Mary is a co-redeemer of humanity. And finally, it's been observed that in popular devotion, the cult of Mary can drift into excess and superstition. For these reasons, Protestants emphasize a distinction that both Catholic and Orthodox believers acknowledge that Christians should honor or venerate Mary as the mother of God, but we don't worship her, for worship is due to God alone. Nevertheless, you might argue that no woman has influenced Western history and culture more than Mary. Her magnificat in Luke 1, 46, to 55 takes its name from the first words of the Latin text. My soul glorifies the Lord, in my spirit rejoices in God my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful, to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And so, despite Protestant reservations, Mary remains central to our Christian confession, and that for four important reasons. First of all, Mary was a woman of exemplary faith. She was a peasant girl from a working-class neighborhood of carpenters in Nazareth, a village so insignificant that it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, it's not mentioned in the historian Josephus of the first century, and it's not even mentioned in the Jewish Talmud. Can anything good come from Nazareth? asked Nathanael in John one hundred forty six. John 1.46. Mary's angelic encounter took place in an unknown ordinary house, not in the temple. When the angel Gabriel foretold the birth of her son Jesus, Mary responded in words of faith that have echoed through the centuries, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Her bold belief startled her pregnant cousin Elizabeth who exclaimed in a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Catholics also remind us of a second Marian truth that's easy to overlook, but nevertheless stupendous. In some mysterious way, the Incarnation resulted not only from the work of God the Father, but also from the will of Mother Mary. Many Church Fathers acknowledged Mary's active cooperation in the history of salvation. Thomas Aquinas, for example, says that human redemption depended upon the consent of the teenage Mary. She didn't ask to bear the Son of God, nor was she compelled to do so. She might have said no, or, like Zechariah, responded to Gabriel's staggering annunciation in disbelief. But she didn't shrink from God's call upon her life. And instead, she enriched all humanity by her willing participation in her obedient submission. Third, Mary was a woman of prophetic pronouncement. Her magnificat moves from the deeply personal to the explicitly political. Mary proclaims, that God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The Mighty One has done great things for me. This peasant girl who a few months later would bear the Son of God then praises God the Mighty One because because he has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble, filled the hungry with good things but sent the rich away empty-handed. I wonder what Herod or Tiberius thought when they heard those words. The incarnation of the Son of God, says Mary, means the inversion of contemporary conventional wisdom. Dethroning political power, plundering rich people, and redistributing food supplies signaled a new age and a new order. And finally, Eastern Orthodox believers emphasize that because the Son of Mary was the Son of God, God in the flesh, we honor her with the technical term Theotokos, bearer of God. In his poem, The Annunciation, John Donne thus marvels. Salvation to all that will is nigh, that all which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die. Lo, faithful virgin, yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb, and although he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear, taken from thence, flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the fe- Ere by the spheres time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest conceived. Yea, thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and shuttest in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. This term, theotakos, bestowed upon Mary by church fathers since the third third century, acknowledges her special role in redemption. Mary is nothing less than the mother of God. When the term gained full official status at the Third Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431, the intent was to emphasize the full divinity of the Son more than the privileged status of his mother. Mary did not give birth to a mere man, Christotakos, as the Nestorians taught. No, she bore a child who was fully divine. If you wonder why Catholics in the Orthodox refer to Mary as the so-called Blessed Virgin, consider the Gospel for this week. Blessed are you among women, said Elizabeth, and Mary herself, from now on all generations shall call me blessed. Veneration of the Mother of God leads to exaltation of the Son of God, which is precisely the message of Christmas in the Magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And now for further reflection. What has been your own experience of Mary in your Christian discipleship? Number two, with which of the four aspects of Mary do you most fully resonate? Number three, what other subversions of cultural conventions might follow those of food, money, and political power because of the Incarnation? And finally, for further study, see the book by Yaroslav Pelikan, Mary Through the Centuries, from the year 2004. For books this week, I review a book called Worse Than War, Genocide, Eliminationism, and the Ongoing Assault on Humanity. The author is Daniel Jonah Goldhagen. New York Public Affairs, 2009, 658 pages. In his controversial and award-winning bestseller called Hitler's Willing Executioners (1996), Daniel Goldhagen altered the debate in Holocaust studies by showing how and why ordinary citizens slaughtered 6 million Jews. And now in his newest book, he extends his study to include what he calls eliminationism. Goldhagen unapologetically describes his sense of calling not to rehash the interpretations of others, but as he puts it, quote, to reconceptualize, understand anew, interpret differently, explain adequately, and to propose workable responses to this catastrophic and systematic problem of eliminationism. Elimination, according to Goldhagen, takes five main forms. First, transformation of a group's essential identity, for example, their language or religion. Number two, repression through such instruments as enslavement, camps, apartheid, famine, or segregation. Number three, expulsion and deportation deportation through such things as death marches. Number four, prevention of reproduction by systematic rape. And number five, extermination. The myths, lies, denials, excuses, rationalizations, self-exculpations, prettified self-images, and linguistic camouflage of both active Perpetrators and passive bystanders are all legion. Although states alone have the power and means to eliminate a group, and political leaders bear unique responsibility, Goldhagen locates the problem in human agency. Eliminationism is not inevitable, it's not accidental. It's not a spontaneous eruption or the work of abstract forces or structures. No, we all have a choice. Goldhagen begins his litany of colossal mass murder with the merciless annihilation of 80% of the Herero people of what is now modern Namibia by the Imperial Germans in 1904. Harry Truman, he says, was a mass murderer because he killed 300,000 Japanese. The Turks slaughtered 1.2 Armenians and exported 800,000 more. Hitler, Kim il sung his son Kim Jong-Il, Pol Pot, Stalin, and Mao Zedong all made slaughtering a constitutive feature of their civilizations. The Hutu genocide of 800,000 Tutsis in Rwanda is well known. But in fact, says Goldhagen, there were at least seven mutual iterative exterminationist episodes since 1962. And today in the Democratic Republic of Congo, some 5.4 million people have died in eliminationist campaigns. Darfur continues to smolder. The list is long, and very few times, places, or peoples have been spared of the scourge of eliminationism. In just the last century, between 127 and 175 million people have been exterminated. They came from all regions of the world and from all social, economic, and political classes. The vast majority of these victims were killed in their own countries by their fellow citizens, by willing and non-coerced murderers, and almost never without any substantial dissent. By Goldhagen's count, mass murder has deeply scarred countries that are home to 4.4 billion people, or two-thirds of the world's population. Today, civilian deaths and injuries outnumber military deaths by a factor of nine to one. And so the subtitle of Goldhagen's book, That Eliminationism is Worse Than War. In addition to his own interviews and scholarly research, Goldhagen includes first-person narratives from both victims and perpetrators along with graphic photographs. I would be hard-pressed to name a more powerfully disturbing book. The experts will quibble and qualify. Cynics will claim the high ground of so-called realism. For example, if Goldhagen really does want to eliminate the United Nations and similar organizations as worse than useless, a line of argument that he takes late in his book. Why should we imagine that his proposal for new institutions will work any better? Or again, were some eliminationist campaigns really, quote-unquote, easy to stop with little cost, as he argues? I would have appreciated more analysis of Israel's eliminationist deeds Especially given his insistence that political Islam is our greatest eliminationist threat today. In the last of his book, Goldhagen says, quote, We must adopt the language of moral responsibility. End quote. We need to insist upon the notions of free choice and human agency. Since political leaders persuade their citizens to slaughter each other because of the near certainty of impunity, we need to radically alter their cost-benefit analysis. And all of us can commit ourselves to the Judeo-Christian ethic of Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute, Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. The author is Daniel Jonah Goldhagen. The title of the book, Worse Than War. For film this week, I review a recently released movie called The Road. Finally, after much anticipation, the film adaptation of the novel The Road. Cormac McCarthy won a Pulitzer Prize for his best-selling novel about a nameless father and son who roam a post-apocalypse world pushing a grocery cart. A tarp and a pistol with two bullets are their only protection. They're traveling south toward the coast for warmth, although it's not at all clear what they could possibly do once they get there. This is a journey with a destination, but with no apparent purpose. They are some of the very few survivors of an unprecedented global catastrophe that has destroyed virtually all life of any kind. We only learn that the clock stopped, at 117. Ash blankets the now colorless world and blows in the wind, the cold rain, and the dirty snow. Their journey is one of death, darkness, and desolation. The father and son are rightly paranoid of every other human being. Shriveled corpses Abandoned houses and the remains of cannibalism are their daily lot. But nevertheless, it's a world of deep love between the protective father and the innocent and apprehensive young boy. No, he assures the anxious son, they would not eat people like the bad guys. Yes, we are the good guys. And by all means, he tells his son, do all you can to quote-unquote carry the fire in your heart. The name of the movie, The Road, a film adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's novel by the same title. And finally, for the fourth week in Advent, we've posted one of my favorite Advent poems by the Catholic priest Daniel Berrigan. Daniel Berrigan was born in 1921. The title, Advent Credo. It is not true that creation and the human family are doomed to destruction and loss. This is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It is not true that we must accept inhumanity and discrimination, hunger and poverty, death and destruction. This is true. I have come that they may have life in that abundantly. It is not true that violence and hatred should have the last word, and that war and destruction rule forever. This is true. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting, the Prince of Peace. It is not true that we are simply victims of the powers of evil who seek to rule the world. This is true. To me is given authority in heaven and on earth, and lo, I am with you even until the end of the world. It is not true that we have to wait for those who are specially gifted, who are the prophets of the church, before we can be peacemakers, This is true, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions and your old men shall have dreams. It is not true that our hopes for liberation of humankind, of justice, of human dignity, of peace are not meant for this earth and for this history This is true. The hour comes and it is now that the true worshippers shall worship God in spirit and in truth. And so let us enter Advent in hope, even hope against hope. Let us see visions of love and peace and justice. Let us affirm with humility with joy, with faith, with courage. Jesus Christ, the life of the world. Daniel Berrigan, Advent Credo. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December twentieth, two 2009, the fourth Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.